In Martin Luther's least favorite book in the Bible, Suffering is Joyful, Humans are no more than water vapor, and the tongue can set your whole life on fire. Welcome to the book of James. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon. We are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome, like, subscribe, comment, and if you're in town, come head down to our church on Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be a great time. We're here. We're here, slaving away, cranking out biblical knowledge for you. Least come you to church. Come and come and join us for some worship together. It'd be great. Mm. Um, and comment. You know, let us know that you're that you're watching this and how you disagree with us. Of course. So we're in a section of the <laughs> New Testament known as the Catholic Epistles. These general letters to broad groups of people. These are kind of for general church use. So we see that again today in James. Um, very interesting book, very practical book. It's, it's probably one of the earliest books written. Got a lot of great, helpful content, right? One of the reasons we know it was written early because James died kind of early. So <laughs> so that's that's part, part of why it is. But who is this James, right? First of all, hate to break the news to you, his name is not James. Um, not oh, in no. Greek. Yeah, I know, I know. I know, look at me being super liberal here. But in Greek, it is Jacob, actually. Jacob. 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 But... As we were just talking about, when you are a, um, when your funder or your your guy who's letting you translate the Bible into English is named King James, you might have to you know <laughs> kind of butter up a little bit. So there are a few there are a few different Jameses in the Bible. You think the king would have chosen like you know Jesus to take <laughs> oh, <laughs> the main that would have guy? Been some real problems. Yeah. <laughs> no, just just Jesus' brother. Okay. Know, like, yeah. Yeah. So there's a few James in the Bible. Um, there's the disciple of Jesus, of course. And then this one is probably Jesus' half-brother. So we see mention of him in Acts chapter 12. In Acts 15, he seems to be kind of the leader of the Jerusalem council. And then we see him in Acts 21, 18. We see mention of Paul visiting him in Galatians 1 and 2. So... There's some some quite a few references to him after the ministry of Christ, and he was clearly influential, clearly a leader in the church, and so he's the half brother, meaning he was born of Mary, right? He wasn't born of God, like Jesus was, so he's only half brother. So James, that's probably who he is. Most people agree on that. Again, there's always debate on everything, so everything, whatever. Um, he re- seems to write this book according to verse one. First of all, I just love the way that James refers to himself. He's the brother of Christ. And he says, James, a servant of God and (laughs) of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he humbles himself, calls Mm -hmm. himself a servant. And then he addresses the audience to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews, Jewish believers across, across the world. So that seems to be the idea is this is written to the church scattered. And there's a focus here. It seems like on Jewish believers, hmm. although of course it has implications for all of us. So um, just that that phrase of the twelve tribes seems to indicate that, but then also the text gives us some hints that he's writing to people who already understand some of the Jewish law and practice. When was it written? Oh, it was written in the early to mid forties, probably. Again, James early. died pretty early. Yeah. So sorry, James, but so it's an early book, and it seems to be focused on the theme of the wisdom of Christ. Hmm. So the reason I picked that theme is because it seems to be, a lot of people point out how it seems to be very much like Proverbs, 
especially yeah. the first like nine chapters, ten chapters that you know go through these different different ideas, um, not just like lone proverbs that are isolated, but kind of a little bit longer form. But he goes through different ideas of how to apply, you know, our the truth of Christ to the Christian life. A lot of people have also pointed out how he is using a lot of things from the Sermon on the Mount oh, yeah. in this book. So there's a lot of those themes, practical wisdom, but from a, a new covenant context. Very cool. So if you were very to helpful. Sh- if you were to structure the book, how would you do that? that I mean, pretty much there's no way to. I mean, people have tried. I, I think that this really, it's really a bunch of, uh, related topics, but it's kind of a patchwork, mm-hmm. just like the Proverbs are. So there's not a neat um, development of ideas like Paul has in his letters or the author of Hebrews does. So it's more of just different topics without a clear structure. Hmm. So it's kind of like Proverbs in that way. Oh, makes sense. Well, you want to get into the text? Of course, always. Let's do it. Chapter Let's get one. James, there's a lot here, man. So first, he starts off by talking about trials and suffering. Then it'll get into wisdom and a bunch of different ideas here. But verse 2, chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Mm. So big starts off very powerfully. When you're suffering, count it joy. Yeah, Think of it as joy. Why? 4, verse 3, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the goal of suffering that God gives to us is to make us complete, mm. to, to show us how to live for him, to refine us, to develop us. So it's a good thing to go through suffering. And then he switches to wisdom, which is going to be a big theme in the book as well, because it kind of, like I said, it kind of reflects the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And one of my favorite passages here in the New Testament, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, so good, right? Mm. Great promise. If you lack wisdom, which you do, <laughs> in some area of life, right? And if you're following God, you're going to have these challenges that will come to you all the time that you're going to say, I lack wisdom in that area. I need something that I don't have. And so the answer is to ask God. Mm. God is one who gives generously. He wants to give to you. He's not... He's not a begrudging giver. He's mm-hmm. constantly giving to us every day. And it says it will be given him. I love this because the, even the act of submitting to God and asking for wisdom in prayer is in and of itself wisdom. Right. right? If you go back to the wisdom literature and that theme of the fear of the Lord mm. is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom, then this is a picture of that. Someone who says, I don't know the answer. I need it from God. That is the heart of what it means to be wise. No. To open God's word and to say, I can't tell God what's true. I can't redefine this. Hmm. I have to submit to what's here. Right. If you do that, you're on the path of wisdom. Hmm. <laughs> that's that's how it is. Or as Proverbs also says, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. <laughs> and whatever Fair. you get, get understanding, right? <laughs> so go and get it. Learn, right? And the only one who has it, as we've seen throughout all of Scripture, is God and his revealed word. So... Then he says, but he goes on to say in verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting Mm -hmm. for the one who doubts like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This person's a double-minded man, verse eight, unstable in all his ways. So you ask knowing who you're asking from Mm -hmm. and in confidence that God's going to give you exactly what you need. Don't be double-minded. Don't be of two different minds divided in your thinking. So great, great encouragement from the very beginning here. Very practical stuff. Look at verse 13, we'll, we'll, we'll jump down here. 
He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Hmm. Great verse, great, great doctrine here that is so important to understanding what temptation is. God is sovereign over everything, but he doesn't engage in evil and he doesn't tempt us toward evil. Right. Right. Tempting is uh, a presentation of sin with the intent of drawing someone into evil to destroy them. And that only comes from Satan. Right. And so God's not the one tempting you, but he is testing you and he's giving you trials to push you into a further knowledge of him. Hmm. Right. So he says, verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's our hearts and our sin that draws us away from God. So we don't blame God hmm. when bad things happen or when we do something bad. And then in light of that temptation idea, he goes to verse 16, do not be deceived my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So part of resisting temptation is to have a thankful heart and understand that everything that we have that's good comes from God. Mm. We have a tendency to take for granted the good things and then to blame God when bad things happen, yeah. even if we're the one who caused the bad thing right. to happen. And so James wants to reverse that. No, you don't blame God for the bad. You acknowledge that God has given to you every good thing that you've ever had. Yeah. And you could meditate on that for a long time. Hmm. The implications of that, every good thing. God is in control of so many factors to bring us every moment of every day to uphold our bodies, to give us the food we need. Yep. We can go on and on, right? Yep. So every good gift is from him. Then he gets into, in chapter 1, verse 19, he gets into hearing and doing. So he says, know this... My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Hmm. Good. Very good, especially in our our social media age where anger is so quickly rewarded, right? If you if you post angry things, if you engage in anger, um, oh. it sells in a sense. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, like righteous anger is synonymous. I mean Worldly on anger is synonymous with righteousness in the world's eyes today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So crazy. be slow, slow to anger. So be quick to listen, right? So you be quick to something, but slow to speak, slow to angry. Be angry, um, and we see that your anger doesn't produce God's righteousness. So be careful with your anger. He doesn't say don't be angry. It's again, it's like Ephesians chapter four, right? Yeah. Be angry and don't, don't sin. sin. Yeah. So be slow to anger. Don't let things get rile you up right away. Take time. If you're angry, step back, think about it, consider before you speak. Right. So there's a lot of wisdom here, a lot of really just practical, simple stuff. And he goes on to talk about being a doer of the word, right? Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. Mm -hmm. And so the great illustration here, very simple. If you if you hear God's word and you don't do it, it's like you look in the mirror, you you see your face, and then you forget what you look like. It'd be yeah. crazy. Right. So when you when you hear it, apply it, do it. Mm -hmm. Let it change you, your perception of the world, how you understand what you believe, and how you act. Very simple truth, but very, very helpful. Let's talk about chapter two. Wisdom. Um, we see some application here. Wisdom avoids partiality. Mm -hmm. Wisdom avoids treating one person as more important or significant than another person. Mm. So chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he goes on talking about, if a rich guy comes into your church, 
don't put him in the front and the poor guy say sit in the back treat people as God would treat them yeah. right in fairness and in, in, in light of the new covenant in light of that God's redeemed all people mm. um, this is this is good because the sin of partiality is really what racism is mm. yeah. and I think often we forget that in our in our in our world though the world is always telling us that you know racism can only be done by one group of people or a few groups of people that's kind of the new thing right racism is prejudice plus power yeah so if you don't have power which means if you're not white <laughs> effectively right then you can't be racist right well the bible doesn't play stupid semantic games like that right it doesn't it doesn't say one one uh, group of people or one skin tone is given special you know allowances in terms of sin that the other group isn't right. <laughs> it doesn't do that it's stupid right. instead it says don't be partial to someone Mm-hmm. by external factors that is ridiculous right and so it doesn't matter what color you are are you treating someone on the basis of their wealth their class their skin color their eyebrow shape their whatever athleticism right. stupid things or are you treating them as god would call you to treat them mm-hmm. it's very simple very simple and we shouldn't also fall into the, the this is a class thing oh treat the rich people bad and the poor people better Right. No, that's not that either, because we can do that too. We can say rich people are bad. Eat the rich. Right. Remember Exodus twenty three three, long time ago, but he, it says you shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Right. Yeah. So just because someone has less advantages, they have a worse situation. Don't favor that person. Just do justice. Right. Just speak the truth, and so it works both ways. Right. Works both ways. So this is entirely countercultural in our world today. Yes. Which which really I mean we're seeing. We're seeing an increasing number of segregated spaces mm-hmm. for people of color, and it's not from what you would think, right? People that are again, like that, they're outwardly saying those people are worse. They're actually saying white people are bad, and we need to be protected from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going back to the same, yeah. same stupid stuff we did a half century ago, you right. know, so or more. Anyway, it's crazy stuff, and James gives us great wisdom to avoid being fools. Right. Amen. Praise God for His His grace to us in this. <laughs> Important point in chapter two, verse ten. Um, in terms of you know partiality, don't commit partiality, or you're going to be a transgressor. Verse ten says, "For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it." Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to follow certain laws and to hold yourself up as righteous. You have to follow the entire law, right. and all of us fall short. Right. So, so wisdom avoids partiality. Wisdom also understands how our faith and works relate. Mm-hmm. It, it understands um, that th- that works naturally proceed from faith. Mm-hmm. It doesn't separate those two and just focus on believing or just focusing on working. And so this section in the second half of chapter two is is key to this book and is one of those problem passages for a lot of people that they, they get confused on. If you're a Roman Catholic, you might have just a really bad understanding of this passage. If you're a Protestant and you understand justification by faith alone, you might be really confused by this because it seems to contradict that. So there are there is a verse here that that seems to directly contradict it. So how do we take this passage? Well, w- big question here is what does justification or justify mean? Mm-hmm. Like how is James using that word? So there there should be no doubt for all of us that words have different connotations, mm-hmm. right? There's the dictionary denotation, the definition. There's also in context, it might have a different variation of meaning. So 
justify, that family of words, means to declare righteous. Declare righteous. Now, the question, though, is in what sense, right? So when Paul uses this word, he typically uses it as a declaration that you are now righteous. You've been given a legal status change by God. So one who is unrighteous is now declared righteous. Right. So yes, you've committed crimes, you've committed sins against God, and he says, I now give you my, my son's righteousness and declare you to be something that you once were not. Mm-hmm. So that's one definition of righteousness that's very important. The other side of that would be declaring righteous as a recognition of what is true, mm-hmm. a, a sort of a vindication, mm-hmm. or even a last judgment sort of justification of God looks at you and says, by the fruit of your life, I can vindicate your faith and say that you were, you lived a righteous life. Mm-hmm. You were being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. And so you truly belong to me. So there's the change of status and there's also the vindication idea. Both are present in that word. Mm-hmm. So there's a reason why a lot of versions uh, of the Bible translate this word justified in this passage as vindicated mm-hmm. or shown to be true. Right. Because that's clearly the idea that's being used here. And we can we can prove it through this passage. It's and when you actually read it in context, it makes a lot of sense. So look at look at the beginning of it, chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So listen to the language, right? Someone says he has faith. Mm-hmm. So the whole question that James is asking here is, is that faith alive? Is it true? Is there real faith there? Right. Or is it just an outward claim of faith? Right. And what he's going to say is, show me, show me the faith. Let it work its way out into real works. This goes in line with Hebrews. It goes in line with the teachings of Christ, right. the teaching of Paul. It goes in line with everything. So do you say it, but do you actually have it? And so he gives this example um, in verses 15 and 17 of when you say to someone, oh, you know, you're poor, uh, be, get, have some food, be warm and filled. Well, that doesn't do anything mm-hmm. unless you have an actual action to follow that up. So was your real intention in those words to help the person or was it just to have a platitude? Mm-hmm. Well, you got to show it. You got to show it. That's u- Those words are useless because useless they don't actually do anything. So he says in the same way, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. It's mm-hmm. dead. It's not real faith. So verse 18, again, he has this idea of show me, vindicate. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Mm-hmm. So it's all about showing, show, show, prove, vindicate. It's not about how you are saved, right. which is what Paul has in view. It's about proving that your faith is a true saving faith. Right. You have the right beliefs, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe in shudder. Okay, so you, you know some truth, but do you have faith? Right. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So useless, again, being about the, the application of faith, that you actually, this is working its way out in some sense. So he gives that second example here. Was, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Okay, now, which of the two senses of justify is he using? Mm-hmm. If it's the first sense I said, which is he's declared righteous, he's now has a different status before God because of what he did in Genesis 22, then that would invalidate Galatians. It would invalidate the Genesis 15, right? Yeah. Which says so clearly that, that Abraham was justified by faith years before that event, right. decades before that event. So Genesis 15, 6, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's right. predominantly Paul's understanding of justification, that word. Right. You are declared righteous. You are counted as righteous. See Psalm 32, right? See 
book of Romans, book of Galatians. So he's not saying that right here. He's using the vindication idea, right? Abraham wasn't saved when he sacrificed Isaac. Right. I don't know. Does anyone believe that? I, I hope not. No, his faith was vindicated. It was shown to be true faith. Right. So he was just, he's vindicated by his works that came from faith in that moment. Um, verse 22, it says, you see that faith was active along with works and faith was completed by his works. Mm -hmm. That's so good. So faith was completed. It was brought to its full demonstration by his works. Yeah. And so it's, it's again, it's not saying that he was saved or justified by those works, but that it was revealed and vindicated. Right. And then the scripture, verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that scripture from chapters before is being fulfilled. It's being demonstrated by the actions of Abraham. Right. So, so all of this points so clearly to what he means in verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Right. Is he saying, has he ever said at any point in this that you're, you're saved, you're justified in the sense of Paul, that you're made righteous before God by your works? Absolutely not. He said the exact opposite. Right. And so he's saying, well, the opposite, but he's saying you're vindicated, that it's proven that your faith is true. Yeah, yeah. The and works we, are were not the source of your salvation; they're the results of your salvation. Yeah. No. And it's so it's such a helpful passage when understood correctly and clearly, yeah. right? This is so helpful because it's saying to us, "No, your life should be showing, should be demonstrating right. a new way of life that yeah. you are Amen. a changed person." So, verse twenty six conclusion: For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Mm. Just like Luther famously said, right? Faith that saves is alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Right. It's always accompanied by works. Right. So we should strive in those works to show the reality of who, who we are being saved by, yeah. by Christ. Amen. Spent a lot of time on that, but it's an important topic. So let's look a little bit about at chapter three. Um, we see that wisdom knows how to control the tongue, right? Wisdom speaks in a wise way. So there's some amazing words on the tongue here. And some great illustrations too. See, so as first chapter three, verse two, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So if you can you can control what you say, then you're essentially perfect because that's one of the most difficult things to control. Yeah. And he uses all these different illustrations here, right? Chapter verse three, the bits in a horse that control which way it moves. <clears throat> your your tongue can direct the course of your life. Verse four, a rudder on a ship. Mm-hmm. A rudder, a small part that directs that directs the entire giant ship in one direction or another, or a, a small fire in a forest that catches and it burns up so many things. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, he says, our tongues are full of evil and can destroy our lives. Right. So be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. And yeah, we have to constantly be repenting of things that we say that are stupid or whatever, inconsiderate or mean because we cause a lot of damage to people. Mm-hmm. So, and you can see why he says at the beginning of this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you mm-hmm. know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Yep. If you talk a lot, you're bound to sin a lot. So you got to be careful. Mm. Got to be really careful. So, um, and then we see at the end here, right? He says, chapter three, verse nine, with it, we, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and father. And with it, we curse people mm. who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Right. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? 
So the whole idea is similar to chapter two, right? That who you are, what's in your heart is going to show itself. Right. And so there should be consistency and integrity in your life in terms of how you speak. Mm-hmm. That you should honor God and honor people and love people with your with your words. Yeah. Chapter four, it's a good chapter on worldliness. We see that wisdom avoids worldliness. And um, the key really is verse six, right? But God, he gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. So we have to, we have to believe that God is in control, and therefore we submit to his will, and we don't chase after the world. Another aspect of wisdom that I love in this book is that wisdom is humble about tomorrow. Wisdom, wisdom is honest about its own limitations. Right. And so, great passage, verses 13 um, through 17. But he says, don't, you know, come now you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So this is great. In his book, Providence, John Piper has a great section on this, on this verse. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he says, he basically breaks it all down. He's like, today or tomorrow? He's like, or never, or next year, or 10 years from now? Like, you don't know the time. Right. You know, he says, well, we'll go, or we won't go huh. into such a town, or into the different town, or into no town, or, you know, and we'll spend a year there, or five days, or 10 years, or, and make a profit, or we'll lose money, or we'll, you know, you just, you don't know any of those details. Mm-hmm. There's so many specifics that we don't have control over. Right. And so we have to admit who we are, which is we are a vapor, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, mm. right? So understand what God wills and what we're in control of, which is nothing. Right. We're in control of nothing. And we we have this illusion in our lives that we have so much control over the future, and it leads to foolish living. Mm. So James redirects our thinking and brings us back to the, the fundamentals here. Yeah. And then we're almost out of time here, but chapter 5, <coughs> wisdom sees the big picture. Hmm. Wisdom sees the reality, right, of, of what's what's coming. <clears throat> Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So be patient, right? <clears throat> Work hard. Discipline yourselves. Yeah. Um, do the right things because God is coming again. Christ is returning. It's at hand. It's near. And so we live in light of that return. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's all we got time for today. Thank you for joining us for the book of James, and we'll see you next week for the book of 1 Peter.